Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 128 of Garden DC, the podcast about mid-Atlantic gardening. We talk with Shannon Curry of Izel Plants all about ornamental grasses and sedges. The plant profile is on American persimmon trees, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Doug Oster, who shares the last word on his daffodil obsession. This episode, we're joined by Shannon Curry. She is Education and Outreach with Izel Native Plants. Welcome, Shannon. Thanks for having me, Kathy. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you here. So we're going to be talking all about ornamental grasses, specifically native ornamental grasses and sedges. But before we jump down that topic, I thought we would start and talk a little bit about you and your career. And a lot of people in the industry are familiar with you, but Maybe the home gardener has not heard about Shannon Curry, which is oh, incredible, right? <laughs> they haven't heard of you. So let's dial it all the way back to baby Shannon. And were you born with a green thumb and chlorophyll in your veins? Not at all. I've come to horticulture in plants, taking a very circuitous route, shall we say. Um, I grew up in Alabama and um, you know, I was around plants and some and Um, used to complain bitterly about being made to work in the garden. So fast forward, I um, came to horticulture after uh, starting a career as a social scientist, actually. Um, I moved to North Carolina to pursue graduate studies in social psychology, worked in the research field for a while, and then kind of discovered or started discovering plants and a love of horticulture. And that was partly just a, a kind of a long evolution. My mom uh, back in Alabama had become a master gardener and gotten really interested. So that was something we talked about. I, meanwhile, had started gardening um, as I, you know, had space to garden and after being a student uh, and having a space and realized this was something I was really passionate about. So I left my uh, research job and went back to school in horticulture. And that was kind of the start of that whole process of, of getting involved in horticulture and being in the field. Mm-hmm. And have you used your degree at all, maybe in sales or with dealing with people? I have. So I, I wound up doing a, a couple of different things. I trained in horticulture and landscape design at NC State University and uh, a great program there and did some work, part-time working with a landscape designer. I worked in a retail nursery, niche gardens, as a matter of fact, which was one of the kind of a pioneering native plant nursery in North Carolina. And, but as part of that, um, I wound up using a lot of the research skills I had learned and the speaking and communicating and writing. I mean, when you're a when you're a social scientist and you're doing research, you know, you have to write up proposals and you have to do things and you have to know how to research um, various topics. So that has all fed into feeding <laughs> my love of plants. And I wound up at Hoffman Nursery 
which is a wholesale nursery in North Carolina that specializes in grasses and grass-like plants. Um, And I spent 15 years there doing a range of different jobs. I I worked in sales. uh, I did some of the marketing, helped with creating content and catalog. I helped manage the trial program for a while, did inventory, did shipping, helped out, I should say. So all of that fed into what my primary work was in was at Hoffman Nursery for most of the time there was um, as their marketing director. And that's writing, talking, and learning about plants and sharing that with other people. And my career before that really dovetailed nicely as just being able to communicate the information that's critical for people to make great choices about plants and how to use them, all that fed into it. And you used a phrase that I, I find highly amusing. <laughs> That's from from Hoffman Nursery. I think marketing is the and grass-like plants. Um, so that's a lot of plants that yes. are grass-like. So that includes sedges, but what else would that include? Well, that's a great question. And it's a really wiggly concept, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, for Hoffman, it was, or it still is, um, Grass-like plants would include, as you mentioned, the the grasses in Poaceae, sedges, most of which are in Cyperaceae families, and then rushes, so juncus, um, the Juncaceae, also sweet flag, agoras, you know, what what people call sweet flag. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't do that many beyond that, but some folks would even call, for example, monkey grass, liriope, um, ophiopogon, those plants, which are actually in the lily family, some people in the trade will call those grasses or grass-like plants. Um, that's not something that Hoffman Nursery does, but um, they're not really grasses. So it's, it's again, it's a concept um, that's a little bit wiggly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's ex- exactly what I was thinking of was the liriope type monkey grass type plants. Yep. Yeah, because most people, you know, and we call lots of things grasses, you know, blue-eyed grass with the cicerentium is in the iris family. So there are a lot of grass-like plants. I think botanists tend to talk in terms of graminoids, and that that's a term that I'm starting to use more myself uh, because that groups them sort of in main part by form. They have that grass-like form and, and some other botanical commonalities that put them lump them together. So that's also a real useful term comparing graminoids to say like forbs or herbaceous perennials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I struggle with the terms like forbs and graminoid because they're they're more like the shape, you know, for design than I think most gardeners think of them. So uh, first, I want to ask about your garden, Shannon, and uh, where you garden and what you grow at your home. I enjoy having a variety of plants. Um, I'm in an older established neighborhood. So I have a lot of tree canopy, which is wonderful, but also that means I've got a lot of uh, partial shade, you know, that, that interesting in-between spot. So I do grow a lot of native plants. I love spring ephemerals. Those are some of my favorites. Um, I'm really experiencing a lot with ground covers, especially for shade. So um, doing some layered planting. So I'm, I'm pretty heavy on perennials because I have a lot of woodies already in an established landscape. So that's where my tinkering happens. Sounds very similar to my growing situation. And yeah, lots and lots of ground covers and lots of 
uh, tree roots to deal with as well. Oh my gosh. Yes. The tree roots are part of it. That's what I told someone if I, you know, planting a large, I don't buy anything big because the work to get it in the ground is way beyond what I'm willing to put in. So always small plants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Smaller holes, a lot easier to dig and fit in there for sure. And can you describe for our listeners your growing area, like where you're located in general, what type of soil and your weather patterns? Of course. So I'm in Durham, North Carolina, which is in the Piedmont region of North Carolina. So we're in between the mountains and the coastal plain. Um, In Durham, where I live, we are in what's called the Triassic Basin, which is um, those ancient soils below us are very clay-based. So lots of shrink swell clays. Um, Our soils tend to be pretty old here in North Carolina, so that they're kind of weathered soils, not necessarily a lot of nutrients in them. Um, Although I'm lucky to have some areas of my yard where someone at some point clearly added some organic matter. So there's some pretty rich, um, nicely organic soils, but also a lot of clay. So let's turn our conversation to the topic of the hour, ornamental grasses and sedges. And I think the first thing we should do is define the difference between a grass and a sedge. Sure. So grasses are, um, and true grasses are in Poaceae. So that's, they're in that family that defines them as grasses. Um, and they have, you know, a number of attributes that are um, distinctive for them in terms of, of uh how they grow, um, which I'll, I can talk about in, in a little bit more depth. And um, sedges look like grasses. And for most people, they kind of function like grasses, but they are in a different family. They're in Cyperaceae. And most of what gets called a sedge uh, as common name in that are commercially available, that most of us have access to, are in the genus Carex or Carex, depending on what do you call it? C-A-R-E-X. Mm-hmm. So carex um, are sedges. And, and there's some other uh, grass-like plants that are also called sedges that are a little bit different. Um, scurpus is one. Um, but that's the big difference is they really are in different families. And there are some differences in, in how they grow and some of their underlying photosynthetic processes. Yeah, I always just hear the easy answer of sedges have edges. <laughs> <laughs> I know that that is so much simpler. Yeah, they're and they really are. That's funny. There's um, as I've gotten to know them as a group better. That's I always thought that was that was the rhyme, right? Sedges have edges, rushes around, grasses have nodes from the tip to the ground, or you know whatever those last lines are. And the the edges of sedges are sometimes the hardest thing to distinguish. Um, there's some interesting ways sedges are different, um, in that they uh, that. They do have, uh, they are triangular often in cross-section. That's where the edge comes from. Um, but they also have the leaf sheaths are a little different. They're fused where grasses have a divided leaf sheath. Um, one of the coolest differences, I think, is, is um, the way that they grow. And so most of the grasses we're familiar with are warm season growers. Sedges, conversely, are all cool season growers. And it has to do just with their photosynthetic process, um, grasses, hmm. warm season plants and warm season grasses function best and grow the most when temperature, air and soil temperatures are higher. Whereas cool season plants like sedges do best 
um, at cooler temperatures. So there's implications for how, you know, when you might plant them, divide them, and, and how you might treat them. So let's get into that uh, for a little bit on those differences. And I would say that one huge difference that I know for a lot of listeners would be interested in is sedges in general are not deer candy. And a lot of grasses can be. Interesting. I might honestly flip that, Kathy. I would say a lot of the mature grasses don't get browsed by deer very much. And what we tend mm-hmm. to see here, at least in North Carolina, is sedge. the early growth on sedges sometimes can get browsed by especially um, you know, small mammals, rabbits and things. Deer don't so much eat them, either one. But that's really interesting that grasses, um, I tend to think of them as fairly not interesting for deer uh, compared to herbaceous perennials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it's not maybe on their second tier of choices, <laughs> not their first, when they're hungry enough. Yeah, and definitely the tender new growth of both. Yes. Um, but once a carex is mature and it has that, you know, edges, mm. that type of habit and it's full, it, they, I think it's pretty much, I wouldn't say deer proof, but pretty deer and rabbit resistant at that stage. Yeah, I think so. That's, that's really been my experience. And, and they're, they're different, you know, groups of them. There are a lot of Asian sedges that are already, uh, that are readily available for most folks. And those tend to be, have thicker leaves, a little bit sharper, you know, those, those also are less tender. Um, some of our native sedges are the same way. They tend to be a little more tender, but gosh, once they're mature, they're just not top of the list, as you noted. Mm-hmm. So um, going back to some of the growth habit and differences between grasses and sedges, uh, for the home gardener, uh, what would you say would be some considerations of a choice between a grass and a sedge? Typically, grasses do best in full sun. Not every grass does. There's certainly some that will do well in the shade. But most of the grasses that you mm-hmm. that are readily available for the home gardener are going to do best in full sun, or at least with, you know, a good seven, eight hours of, of sun a day. Sedges, on the other hand, uh, often are more shade tolerant or even prefer shade. There are, of course, exceptions on both sides, but sedges are really good choices for partial shade and, and heavier shade conditions. That's one of the primary ways I like to think about it. You know, if it's a grass or excuse me, if it's a sun situation, you're probably looking at a grass and a few sedge choices. If it's in the shade, you're really going to want to go to sedges for those choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. I think sedges are such a great choice for understory situations mm-hmm. and ground cover and, and like holding in a slope where there's some part shade or shade or under deciduous trees. Yeah, that's a great application. And I really like their ability to, to um, you can, for example, on a slope or if you're doing a planting, this is where I've seen this done a lot is you might put in some woody plants, or, you know, some smaller trees, the small sizes we were talking about earlier. You can do, put in small woodies and underplant with sedges. And if it's not, as long as it's not just full on sun and dry, they'll typically tolerate some of that sun. And especially in the mid-Atlantic, you can really get away with this. You can have them in some sun, but over time, as those woody plants mature and increase the shade cover, the sedges adapt very well to that change over time. So that evolution, they're, they're really understory plants in most cases. And so they're well adapted to that situation. Mm -hmm. 
And so for expansion or propagation, I'm thinking, you know, you usually buy a gallon pot of a grass and then it slowly mm -hmm. starts to expand after you plant it, right? Increase right. in size. And then you might divide it after mm -hmm. a few years and put that clump somewhere else. Um, but they also can recede depending on what it is versus I think a lot of yes. Carexes in my uh, experience with them have been more like they make a baby to the side almost and then you move that little <laughs> baby out from underneath and put that somewhere else and much slower to grow and expand yes that's true and and one of that's one aspect of that cool season versus warm season so warm season plants are and grasses in particular really good growers they're they're a they'll grow a lot and you're right, the sedges are a little slower. There are a few that will reseed fairly prolifically, but those tend to be some of the more, um, like there are a number of wetland sedges that are that are pretty heavy reseeders. There are a few, but in general, they're not as spready as some grasses can be. You know, a lot of the grasses are wind pollinated. So that's where you see that movement happening, uh, you know, as the seeds spread. Whereas sedges often... Um, some of the sedges are, you know, they're pollinated by insects. So um, you don't get quite the spread sometimes and not the heavy seed set that some of the grasses produce. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that seed and the wind pollination, is that something that people who have plant allergies uh, might be concerned with? My understanding is, and, and I'm, it's not something I'm, I'm well versed in, but my understanding is a lot of the ornamental grasses are not necessarily the ones that folks are um having strong reactions to it tends to be a lot of the turf grasses. So, you know, what the, what's we think of as a lawn grass, uh, but there are a few um, prairie drop seed is one example of um, it's a Midwestern native grass that does really well in the mid Atlantic and all over the Southeast, but it has kind of a, a, a smell of um, kind of a combination of cilantro and popcorn. Some people have said, and it can bother some folks. So um, the ornamental grasses can bother people, but a lot of times those allergies are actually more likely to be caused by turf grasses or some of those um, things like ragweed in the fall that bloom at the same time. Mm -hmm. And tree pollen, a lot, a lot, a lot of tree pollen. Yeah. A lot of tree pollen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Hmm. So uh, off the wall question here, any ornamental grasses or sedges in the native categories that are edible for humans? Ooh, in the native category. That's a good question. I don't know of any, Kathy. Because hmm. I know, you know, there are some imported grasses, like rice is one. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. And that's true. Oh, that's a good point. I'm thinking there, now there is a Lyrzea. That's the botanical name for rice. There is a native hmm. Lyrzea. So that's a great question. I don't know enough about some of our natives that are maybe not in the trade, there may be some out there, you know, um, there's certainly some mm -hmm. ethnobotanical uses for a lot of those um, native grasses. There's some that were used for, you know, medicinal purposes and um, for, um, you know, thatching roofs and stuffing in shoes and that kind of thing. But um, eating, yeah, lemongrass is certainly one, but that's, that's not, that's an introduced grass uh, from Asia. Yeah. And yeah, those uses you talked about, um, you know, from breeding sweetgrass famously to yeah. all the decorative uses that we have at Thanksgiving where people are cutting off seed heads and putting them in floral right. arrangements and enjoying them that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, that's a really cool question. I'm going to, 
I'm going to have to look into that because that's really interesting. I, I tend to think about the uh, medicinal and sort of the, you know, the functional uses, but eating native grasses or sedges. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe some forager expert would be able to answer that for us. Absolutely. So for the care and feeding of grasses and sedges, so we talked about grasses tend to be more in the sun, sedges tend to be more in the shade. So if you planted ornamental grass and it was more, you know, part shade situation, I think they kind of become a little floppy. I don't know if that's the technical term for that. And they'll need staking or tying up. Um, what is your advice in that situation? Yes, I think you're you're absolutely right. That's that's one of the challenges when you put grasses in a partial shade situation. They they can have lax growth. They really do need full sun to be upright and and you know not to flop. Flop's a perfectly good term. I've heard of also called lodging sometimes. Um, so in that case, what you can do is cut them back maybe early in the season, um, grasses, especially those warm season grasses, like say a switchgrass, a panicum um, would be a good example, um, really needs full sun to look its best. You can, if you do have issues with flopping, you can cut it back in the spring or even early summer, and you're going to get another flush of growth as those warm temperatures will bring out another flush of growth. And that might keep it a little shorter so that it's less likely to flop. Um, a better approach is to is to put it in the full sun. Um, the other way that sometimes people run into trouble with grasses is putting them in a situation where they are they do have a lot of uh, nutrients in the soil, or they're fertilizing them, you know, adding fertilizer to them and irrigate, irrigating them uh, a lot, and that can lead to really lush growth, but it often is lax growth and it can flop over. A lot of these warm season grasses, especially our native species, evolved to be very efficient with water and nutrients and sunlight. And so they grow really well. They grow abundantly when they have a lot of those, but they really are adapted to very lean soils or to conditions that are much more difficult. And so if you baby them, you actually can cause them to grow really lushly and then they can flop over. So a better approach is actually to put them in a tough spot, put them in lean conditions. They they really are kind of, I call them low resource plants because they often do better if you don't baby them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned that lesson with some blue fescue. <laughs> and ah! I definitely overwatered that and they disappeared on me because of that. But I would say the toughest... Um, challenge for some home gardeners would be you want to mix in a perennial border or with shrubs or something else some of those beautiful grasses to combine them together and then you have two plants that are needing different things as you said they would be over watered or over fertilized by being mixed in so what is your advice for um, combining them yeah well the the most obvious thing obvious would be to you know put them in there with other plants that are also good you know at those conditions so there are certainly lots of especially native species that you know evolve together that are really good complements um, some of our most popular perennials like you know the echinacea babtesia um, lots of plants that do well with um, the same kinds of conditions as some of the grasses do. But 
I get it. You know, I've got a bed where I am tucking in some grasses and it's certainly less than ideal. It's, it's fairly rich clayey soils. It doesn't drain very well and it's, you know, stays fairly moist. That's where maybe choosing one, as I said, like a switchgrass, I put a switchgrass in there and I do give it a chop back um, late in the spring or early in the summer to keep it where it's not going to grow too tall. Um, you can, you know, or as you mentioned, Kathy, you know, you might be staking it or even late in the season, you can, you know, wrap, um, tie it up. I've seen people do that. And, you know, it's, it's a very particular look um, to have it tied up, but that might be one way to have your grass and your other plants if you really want those conditions that are going to make it kind of have that lush growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you um, put that so diplomatically about the tying up, <laughs> Shannon. <laughs> I was going to talk a little bit about um, some of our pet peeves about grass care uh, for ornamental grasses in the garden. And, you know, uh, I don't want to say it's crimes against horticulture, but there are, I've, there's there been some interesting ways I've seen people, and I think it's out of desperation. You're just like, this grass is just flopping too much into the pathway or into the driveway, yeah. and I just don't have anything else, so I go inside and, and get a length of hose, garden hose or something. <laughs> like, what, yeah, yeah. what can oh, I yeah. do? Um, so yeah. what would be your ideal uh, staking uh, materials to use? Ah, oh, that's a good question. I mean, if if you know from the get-go uh, that that's going to be an issue, you know, if something like, um, uh, you know, a loop that you can, um, you know, you might do, I've used one for that I've used for peonies, you know, or something tall like that, that you can have it grow up through the loop or through some sort of grid um, can work well because, you know, the, the aesthetic attributes of the grasses are being able to see that foliage and have that natural spread be there. So something that will keep it from flopping over is a good idea like that. So thinking about a loop or a grid, fairly tall. So it's, you're going to want to have something, especially depending on the height of your grass, you want to get it. I'm going to say maybe halfway up the the ultimate height. Um, The other way or other thing I thought about was, you know, you obviously sticking it in between some other supporting plants or perennials or I honestly have one kind of a, one of my grasses growing up through um, a little obelisk, you know, where it can have a little bit of support. So maybe thinking about growing it through a structure uh, would be a good way to approach it. And it, it kind of looks cool. You've got that there and you can also have vines, you know, up, up that structure as well. And it makes for some really nice textural, textural contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm picturing something like a very large tomato cage, like something much more round, you know, like the peony hoops that you talked about, but obviously yeah. it has to be a little taller than that. And you might right. have to MacGyver and um, make something out of wire yourself for that. But yeah. And then it eventually disappears. But as you said, one of the main reasons why we love grasses in the garden so much like those is not just the look and that kind of fountain mm-hmm. shape a lot. But also for me, it's the sound and mm-hmm. also that you can run your fingers through as you pass by. Because there's a lot of grasses that just have a great texture and you want to touch them. But, you know, if they're chained up, like literally chained right. up, that's really hard to do. Oh, yeah. That's I, you've really hit on to me. One is I think there's a unique kind of set of aesthetic qualities that grasses bring to the party um, and that 
movement and sound are really key to me. I mean, you think about there are very few other plants where you, you can hear the wind rustling through them, like with grasses, and especially once they've gone dormant and dried out. Um, so it's sort of, I, I think of them as kind of visually manifesting the wind and also doing it by sound. Um, you know, there's just to me nothing more relaxing than going out into a field and hearing the wind rustling through grasses. It's just very peaceful, kind of primal. And um, that's one of their best attributes or one set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love the way you say it's a primal memory and something that, you know, all of us can relate to being out there and closing your eyes and just hearing the wind move through the grasses and, you know, running your hands through that or just walking through. Um, and then you mentioned that's the sound is the best after the seed heads or, or the plumes have dried, you know, once it's gotten to that stage. So that brings up another pet peeve of grass care, ornamental grass care, is right when it gets to that stage, I will see landscaping crews chopping them down to the ground. <laughs> and why? Why, Shannon, why? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew you were. I thought the same thing. Uh I know it's really painful. And, I, you know, I, it's funny. I've, I've talked to, to professionals about this and sometimes they're like, that's exactly when we have the time to do it, which, you know, I get it, but gosh, you are just, you're losing again, one of the unique features of grasses, I think, or if not unique, at least rare is that they really are pretty showy during the winter time. Once they're dormant, they don't melt to the ground. You've got structure in the garden and interesting seed heads, um, you know, and to see them cut back is just enormously painful. Um, I, the other cool part about leaving them up from a functional standpoint is that, you know, you think about grasses have a pretty thick crown to them. You know, they're, they're fairly dense down at ground level and because they're not melting, you know, down to the ground once they freeze. So there, you've got a structure there. When the rain falls, those grasses will slow down the raindrops. They'll slow down stormwater runoff. You know, keeping them up actually is, a, you know, is a, is a stormwater management technique. It's a way to help reduce erosion in your garden. It's a way to help, you know, slow and treat that runoff. And so environmentally, ecologically, it's a really smart move to leave them up. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, yeah, well, sorry to also for wildlife cover. I mean, we know our songbirds, um, small mammals, all kinds of creatures use that material for nesting, for food, for cover. So um, you're, you're just, they're ecological powerhouses relative to a lot of other plants in the winter time. And so you just lose that if you cut them back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another reason not to cut back early, in my opinion, is you are damaging the plant potentially and going too low. Or if you have a really harsh mm -hmm. winter, right? Um, if you cut it back, there's a reason it's it's supposed to stand up over the winter and because it, it's kind of mm -hmm. protecting the lower part of the plant think of it as the insulation above um so yeah. if you wait till the end of winter early spring um you know nature's probably done some of the cutting back for you too if we've had a couple storms or or a couple big 
ice storms or snow storms, then you're just chopping it back. Um, and I usually just let it lay right there. What do you do with your mm-hmm. cut grass? I do. I let it lie there depending. There are a couple of spots where I don't, I just have so much biomass in a bed that I sort of pull it out, chop it up and, and move it around. Um, but I do like to leave it there when I can, which is leads to that point of also, you know, there, there are native bees. There are creatures that use those hollow stems um, to nest in. And so if you're cutting everything way back, you're either, if you do it too early, that opportunity isn't there, or if you, you know, or you're, you're, you know, damaging, um, you know, potentially getting those creatures as well. Um, You know, you mentioned if you cut back or, you know, before the winter, that is letting a lot of moisture get into the crown of a grass. And the, that crown is really kind of critical to understand. You never want to bury that either below, you know, when you're planting, you don't want to bury it too deep. You don't want to throw a lot of mulch on top of it. You want it to be protected from cold. But that's where, as you said, Kathy, leaving up those stems is the best way, you know, sort of to have that grass be protected. Um, if you skin it down and you cut into the nodes, uh, the growing nodes, you know, you're really, you're, you're lowering the survivability of your plant. Mm-hmm. And I think people do struggle on the other end of things in that late winter, early spring that, you know, they start to see some green growth emerge and they don't want to cut too low into that, mm-hmm. but then they're like, how high do I right. cut it? So do you have a rule of thumb for that? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you can, I do. I tend to say maybe six to eight inches of leave about six to eight inches, but the real key to, to, to go a little more in depth is you really want to avoid, if you've got new growth emerging, try to cut above that. Because with grasses, if you cut the tips, you'll be stuck with those, those brown tips for the season. Um, but taking it where you're just not cutting down into the growth points of the crown. So if you really, really don't like those stems sticking up, you can go low. But I would say in general, if you leave six to eight inches, you're in good shape. Great. Thank you for that, Shannon. And so I think the mm-hmm. last maintenance uh, part of ornamental grasses and sedges that a lot of home gardeners have to deal with is some errant weeds or vines coming up in the middle of them or sprouting like Mm -hmm. birds, you know, do nest in some grasses and then they will poop out some, you know, Lanicera, some of the, the, I'm not talking Uh about the native one. (laughs) I'm talking about the, 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 exactly. So the, the Asian honeysuckle will all of a sudden be planted a tree right in the middle of a grass. Yeah. Ooh, that is a tough one because if you've got a mature grass, it's really difficult to get in, down in there. Um, that's where, you know, when, when you do cut back is a really opportune time to try to, to get through into that um, and, and try to extract it. You know, if you can pull it out, but the other approach would be to go ahead and dig it up if it's a serious invasion, dig it up and divide it. And that's the point where you can you can pull out those invaders. Hmm, great advice. Um, so let's transition to some of our favorite grasses. So we'll talk, I'll ask you a couple of the, my natives that I love. And one of them is pink muley or muhlenbergia. Yes. Oh, that's a great one. It's 
you know, it's, uh, we call it the 55 mile per hour plant. Uh, you, you know, everybody sees it. It's just like cotton candy in the fall. Um, I like that one a lot. Uh, one of the, um, sort of cultivars that I really enjoy is one called white cloud, which is a white version of that. Um, and that one I love because it blooms a little bit later than the pink muley, maybe a couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. that white color actually stays vibrant for much longer than the pink color stays on the pink muley. Um, but both are fantastic. They both really do need good drainage. And I would add, cause I can't help myself that it really is one that you want to make sure you don't plant too late in the fall. Um, it needs to get good root system established before going into the winter. So it's one that I might urge people to plant either in spring or not much later than maybe, you know, late summer. Hmm, Good advice. And so the next one I think is just gorgeous and really gaining in popularity, which is the little blue stems. Yes. Oh, they're so wonderful. They were actually the 2022 perennial plant of the year was little blue stem and the cultivars. And I think with really good reason, um, we were talking a little bit, you know, about seasonality and and how great grasses are in winter. Uh, I think little blue stem to me across a season, the colors that it produces as it matures, you know, it starts with the blue color, the little blue stem and blues and pastels and just the evolution of that color over the growing season that culminates in those just magical sparkling inflorescences is, is just really stunning in the landscape. And it's, um, I'm glad to see that grass get so much more attention. Hmm, Yes. And I would say I'm seeing it used more and more like in office park, parking light, you know, type of situations because it is Mm -hmm. so tough um, such as tough plant, you know, set it and forget yeah. it. Basically, <laughs> you don't have to water, don't have to do anything else. Oh yeah, I yeah, I th- I tend to think of it as um, I call it one of my on the edge grasses. It's uh, it's great, like for the you know rocky edges of medians and parking lots and those really dry spots that often drain quickly. So you, I've even seen it used beautifully on the edges of a of a rain garden, you know, that's filled with really quick draining soils. And you put those little blue stems on the edges and, um, you know, the water rushes through, it soaks in quickly and they're just a great plant for edges and for urban settings. And I think that's why we're seeing it used more and more because it's such an adaptable plant to that kind of difficult urban site. Mm -hmm. I think also because aesthetically it has, you know, hints of pinks and purples, Mm. on the blades in with the blue. So it's really nice um, combining it with other plants as well. Oh yeah, that's true. It it plays well with others. Mm -hmm. And then another one I was going to mention, and I'm not sure if this is, you know, it's not native necessarily to the mid-Atlantic, but it's certainly Uh used a lot here, which is Mexican feather grass, Nacilla. Oh yeah. I, I do love that one. It's um, yeah, it's, it's a Southwestern native. Um, as you mentioned, not native to the Mid-Atlantic, but it is, um, I believe, you know, certainly in the trade, it is the most, it's the finest textured grass out there. It's just very fine blades. Um, it is actually 
the exception um, in that it is a cool season grass that loves full sun. And so it's one that in the spring, you know, part of what we love about it is it's got that bright green early in the season and then it blooms in the spring with these really cool seed heads at the tips of the blade. And um, it's just so swishy and kind of, a, I think of it as kind of a romantic grass if we can think of it that way, because it's just so texturally um, beautiful and it, the movement of it is is really stunning in the garden. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the name Mexican feather grass. Yeah. You know, how can you not love that? <laughs> I know. I know. And it, I'll tell you, it's a trooper for containers too. That's where I think it really shines is in raised beds or containers. Um, it's, it's just so wonderful is that sort of, you know, spiller over the side and texturally with broader leafed plants. It's such a great addition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great accent with that. And then a sedge that I love Pennsylvanica. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool one. And that's by far right now, at least in the, in the horticultural trade, that is the most popular native sedge. Um, It's one that's, you know, you find it typically in mostly shady conditions, but it, it, it sometimes in full sun. Um, I think what everyone loves about it is fine textured blade and it spreads and creates this carpet you know, it's, um, there are very few other grasses or sedges that do it quite so well. And it, um, is just, uh, you know, you can look through, I've hiking in the mountains of North Carolina, for example, there are woodland areas where, you know, beautiful tree canopy overhead. And just as far as you can see, there's this green carpet of Pennsylvania sedge spreading out the forest floor. Um, and it often, you know, you can see trillium growing up in it, it you know, it, it's one that allows other beautiful perennials to grow up um, through it and is just, again, really beautiful, beautiful sedge. Agreed. So gorgeous. Um, and how about you, Shannon? Any favorites we haven't named so far? Mm, you, you hit most of my, my faves for sure. Um, I, do love, I do love the switchgrasses. Uh, um, to me, part of what I love the seed heads on them. And what's great is that there are now in the trade, there are really wide range of cultivars available. So you can get really short ones, tall ones, red ones, green ones, blue ones. You know, there's a lot of variety to them, but they're just so easy. Um, They'll handle my wet clayey soil. They'll do well in dry sandy soil. They're just super adaptable. And um, that's part of what, why I really like them. Um, Sedge-wise, Carex Pennsylvanica, you got the other one I'll mention, which I think is is hardy up into pretty good chunk of the Mid-Atlantic, is um, Carex cherokeeensis, the Cherokee mm-hmm. sedge. And it's one that I've been super impressed with because it is, for a sedge especially, is really tough. It, um, it grows to maybe two to three feet tall, um, can be shorter, can be taller, but that's kind of a, a typical height and has really beautiful pendulous seed heads. Um, but it's a toughie. It's great for filling areas. Uh, it's not one I might put in maybe a, a more managed or manicured bed, but I found it's just, it's it's the sedge I tend to mentally reach for when I want something to fill a space or to, you know, as a ground cover in a tough situation. Um, that's one that 
I've just been really impressed with. Mm-hmm. And so mostly we've been talking about native ornamental grasses mm-hmm. and sedges, and maybe we should have a little nod to some of the non-natives. We had mentioned some of the Asian sedges, and there's, of course, yeah. hybrids of in-betweens. And then mm-hmm. there are the those categorized as invasive grasses. So I'm specifically thinking of miscanthus. So if you were to inherit a home or buy a new place and it had a big stand of miscanthus, how would I replace that? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And miscanthus certainly is is a can be a problem in, in certain areas and can definitely reseed. Um, I had some in, in my home landscape and I wound up putting in instead a panicum, the switchgrass. I think in terms of height and you know aesthetic qualities, it's doing a lot of the same thing. So that's a good sub. Uh, another one which we haven't mentioned and um, will do pretty well here in this in the on the east coast is Sporobolus ridei. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when it's a, it's a southwestern native, so not native to the Mid Atlantic, but it has a big presence. It's a big grass with big plumes and does pretty well here and has that big presence. If you're really looking for, you know, the sort of the uh, visual statement that Miscanthus can make, and it is a beautiful grass, um, Sprobus radii is a great sub for that. So uh, I was also thinking of a native, and I'm not even sure if this is under grasses or we can consider it one of those grass-like plants um, that people struggle uh-huh. with because it does reseed like crazy, and that's northern sea oats. Oh, yeah. It's a grass, and that's uh, the Chasmanthium latifolium. And, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's one of those plants where in the right spot, it will do a fantastic job. So if you want a spreader, if you want something to, for example, hold in soil on a slope, or you've got maybe a long, you know, a lot of us um, in some neighborhoods have long, you know, drainage ditches or areas, almost a swale, you know, as as the engineers call it, um, that you want to fill up and you want to hold in soil, or maybe you've got riprap, you know, along one of those. That's where putting in Northern sea oats um, river oats, excuse me, would be, you know, a good choice because it is going to stay there and it's going to reseed and spread. Um, another management technique I've seen, which um, one of the botanical gardens here where I am, they go through and they cut off the seed heads, ah, um, you know, before they mature. Um, you lose some of the ornamental quality by doing that, but you still get that really lovely bamboo-like foliage. Mm. Yeah, I, that's definitely a hard choice <laughs> to cut off. I know. Yeah. It's so, it's so. <laughs> you don't want it to recede everywhere, but then you're like, the whole kind of the point is those gorgeous uh, flowing seed heads that, you know, not too many other grasses have something similar to those. I know. So there's this, there's a sweet spot where, you know, right after they, they're green and they start turning brown, you can cut them back. But yeah, I, I've had people, you know, sort of curse, curse that plant, um, but again, that I think it's, you know, right plant, right place. And, you know, uh, we should absolutely be letting people know that this is going to spread. Mm-hmm. And if that's not what you're looking for, choose something else. Exactly. So how can listeners get in contact with you and learn more about Eisel plants? 
Well, I'd say start with going to our website. It's um, izelplants.com. So I-Z-E-L-P-L-A-N-T-S.com. And if they'd like to email, they have questions about anything, um, you can get in touch with us at hello at izelplants.com. Excellent. Thank you, Shannon. Uh, Any final thoughts on using ornamental grasses and sedges in the garden? I think that one of the barriers for folks is understanding how to use them, when to use them, and and making the right choices because there is such a range. But um, I'd invite folks to jump right in, try out a grass, see how it does. Um, And there's just so many more available now. The industry is paying attention and is um, coming up with new selections and breeding in ways that are really addressing what people want from their landscapes. And grasses are just a great way to have landscapes that do more for us ecologically. And um, I think they're a good solution for a lot of, of common landscape challenges. So I'd say give them a try. Well said. Thank you, Shannon. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Native persimmon tree plant profile. American persimmon tree, Diosporus virginiana, is a small fruit tree that is native to most of the eastern and midwestern United States. It is also known as the common persimmon, eastern persimmon, possum apple, possum wood, winter plum, Jove's fruit, or native persimmon. It grows best in moist, sandy soils, but is fairly adoptable. It can tolerate light shade. You will need a nearby male tree to have a fruiting female one, though there are native cultivars available now that are bred to be self-fertile, including Yates, Proc, and Mead. This highly ornamental tree has oval leaves that are a glossy dark green. They turn yellow in the fall before dropping. The bark is a dark gray and has an interesting texture that resembles alligator hide. The persimmon tree's fruit becomes orange to reddish purple when it is ripe. Do not consume it until it has matured fully and you'll know when it's ripe as the fruit falls to the ground. Those who try to eat the fruits before they are ready learn their lesson as the bitter and astringent tannins will pucker up their mouths in a very unpleasant way. The fruit is difficult to store and transport so you will not commonly find it for sale but if you're lucky to get some It's used to make syrups, jellies, and puddings. Persimmons are also consumed by birds, deer, raccoon, opossum, and fox. The tree can be propagated from seeds or root cuttings. Due to its deep taproot, it is difficult to move or transplant it once it is established. American persimmon tree, you can grow that. What's new this week? 
Well, in my home garden, I am planting bulbs as fast and furious as I can. Over at the community garden plot, I was able to harvest a pretty good quantity of the bower lettuce. The peas are still looking a couple weeks away, as is the kale, spinach, and some other cool season crops that we are growing. But we still have peppers and okra going amazingly. I think that will probably end this week. In the local gardening world at Brookside Gardens, Silver Spring Garden Club is meeting on Monday, November 14th at 7.30 p.m. in person. And that meeting is free and open to all. It is a talk on growing tropical edible plants. And the speaker is former guest of this podcast, Naraj Ray. And it will be a fascinating discussion, I am sure. Also happening, Ladies in the Landscape is hosting a free and fun workshop on November 20th at 4 p.m. online. And you can find out more about that by emailing ladiesinthelandscape at gmail.com. That will be a session on how to overcome holiday stress with meditation exercises, yoga poses, and other tools to better manage this time of year. And the Landscape Technology Program at Montgomery College Germantown campus has announced its slate of spring 2023 courses. And so you'll want to sign up for those right away. They include Hort 100, Intro to Plant Sciences, Intro to Sustainable Landscaping, Creating Gardens in a Digital Age, Introduction to Arboriculture, Plant Materials 2, Landscape Management, Plant Propagation and Production, and a Landscape Technology Internship. Um, To find out more about that, you can go to montgomerycollege.edu. And classes will be starting the week of January 23rd. And related to that, you'll definitely want to check out the Advanced Tree, Fruit, and Small Fruit Production class with emphasis on IPM. That runs December 13th through January 19th. And another uh, guest of Garden DC, uh, that is Stanton Gill, is teaching that class. And it will take place virtually on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 5.30 to 9.30 with three in-person Saturday hands-on sessions. And again, you can find out more about that through montgomerycollege.edu. And then finally, some holiday events to look forward to. Ledoux Topiary Gardens has announced their 2022 Christmas programming, and that includes Christmas in the Manor House, a holiday green sale, festive fun, the Ledoux gift shop, and holiday eats and treats, and that you can find out more through the Ledoux Gardens website, ledougardens.com, and the dates for that are Thursday, December 8th through Saturday, December 10th. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. 
with the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here. You'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is the last word on my daffodil obsession by Doug Oster. It was 1967 and I was seven years old when first visiting the graves of my grandparents at Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland. It's also the last resting place for President James Garfield, Elliot Ness, and legendary rock and roll DJ Alan Freed. While honoring my family, I turned back to see something called Daffodil Hill, an amazing display of yellow trumpets dancing in the spring breeze, which was first planted in the 1940s. I'll never forget it. I was profoundly affected by that hillside of flowers. My mother always talked of Daffodil Hill with reverence, and when I moved to my current garden over 20 years ago, I told her I was going to build my own Daffodil Hill in memory of my grandparents, each year adding hundreds, well, sometimes thousands of bulbs. Garden obsessions are so important. They keep me going. I spend countless hours searching for rare varieties of daffodils, often attached to a special story or special people. The daffodil Catherine Hepburn was introduced by a dear gardening friend of mine so that the named variety Spencer Tracy would have a companion in his garden for the rest of time. Twin Sisters was introduced in the 1500s. Although most have two blooms, they can be triplets or quadruplets too. The unique variety is one of the last to bloom, and the flowers have a wonderful aroma. Spending fall days on my knees with a bulb auger in one hand and a bag of daffs in the other feels so good. The cool soil eventually numbs my fingers. This is an instant gratification. That comes later, though. It's the anticipation of seeing that spring show which inspires me to keep planting. You see, once the daffodils arrive, there's no turning back. The season is underway and winter is finally, finally behind us. When they bloom, I think of my mother. And although she wasn't a big gardener, her love of Daffodil Hill still inspires me over a half century later. There's a national PBS show called The Cemetery Special from 2005 with a segment about Lakeview Cemetery which includes a young version of me talking about my love for those flowers. You can also check out all my gardening stories at dougoster.com. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash gardendc slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you.
You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.